From the Clock Tower of Mountaineer, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. We're C.S. Lewis enthusiasts, not experts, just like you. And today we are talking about Prince Caspian, chapters 8 through 15. And big pause, if you aren't reading along with us, that's the point of the book club. So uh, pause it here, go read the chapters, and come back and join us. And we always want to hear from you, so feel free to reach out and send in your questions and comments. Yeah, if you if you don't really want to read along, you just want to listen to us talk, that seems weird to us. But We'll allow it. <laughs> we'll allow it. Um, <laughs> next week, we're starting The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. All right. Reap a cheap. That's, That's right. who I think of. <laughs> yeah, he's already made an appearance here, right? But yeah. we really get his story. Chapters 1 through 7. Uh, All right, so just before we jump into everything, uh, our housekeeping minutes. Uh, First, I confessed to Alex before we started recording that the other night I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking about the Chronicles of Narnia, which is totally normal. And just that I, as we were re-listening to a previous episode, and I just thought, man, I really hope we hit the biggest theme that I saw in the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a line when Edmund sees the animals get frozen to stone. When he says, it says, it was the first time Edmund stopped thinking about himself. And then later on, when he's with Aslan and the witch is taunting him and saying things to him, where it says, he just kept looking at Aslan and he only thought of Aslan and he didn't hear anything the witch was saying. And just to me, it was finally all this, it was like this realization that like, man, this is one of the things that C.S. Lewis was trying to convey to us was. When we stop thinking about ourselves, we stop Edmunding it <laughs> and start and start just looking to Aslan. Forget about ourselves and focus on the good and and what's right, um, which is the real Edmunding. Yeah, right? eventually. Yeah, <laughs> fortunately, is <laughs> learning to stop thinking about yourself so much. Right? Yeah. So so that's my housekeeping bullet point for this morning is just stop thinking about yourself. Uh, look at Aslan. Focus right. on that. Yeah, and and in uh, Prince Caspian. You can see that Edmund's still in a grow, growing, I mean, he's, he's, he's still developing. Yeah. It's not like Edmund's perfect from now on. You can see that his resolve is to do the right thing, but he's still got a lot of instinctive, I don't know what you'd call it, just curmudgeonly. He's, he's kind of moody. Still. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and that makes me think of like two or three things. So, <laughs> right. well, so we'll continue. Yep. One, one thing that I wanted to bring up is um, Prince Caspian, and I think I've said this before, you know, growing up, it was my least favorite of the books. And I think it wasn't until looking at it, reading it with a purpose, understanding what can I learn from the development of the characters. I really like have gained a, a greater appreciation for this book. And uh, anyway, I, you know, I think typically that's the way that people feel is the story isn't that exciting from Prince Caspian. Even like if you watch the Disney production of Prince Caspian, they add a bunch of like exciting elements that aren't in the- Turn up the heat a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that, that aren't in the book. They have a whole whole siege scene where they go to Miraz's castle that never happens in the book. And I, I, we were, I can't even remember what they're trying to get there, but I don't think that it needs that. I think that everything in the book that it has, I think it does serve a purpose. I, I feel like our discussion will focus on maybe a single part of the book and it will be hard to get to everything that we want to get to because it is very rich with applicable morals. I agree. So in chapters 8 through 15, that's 8 through the end of the book, the Pevensies prove to Trumpkin by feats of skill that they are the kings and queens of old. They make the difficult journey to Aslan's Howe. Upon their arrival, Peter, Edmund, and Trumpkin quell a mutiny. Peter challenges the usurper Telmarine king, Miraz, to a duel. Peter is victorious in the duel, but the Telmarines still attack. The trees help in the defeat of the Telmarine army, while Aslan, Susan, and Lucy liberate the town of Baruna. Excellent. And then there's wrap-up that happens after that, right? Yeah. As far as some big themes, let's spend a little bit of time just on some, some big ideas that you liked from this section. Maybe um, if you could jump into one or two that stood out to you, Alex. Yeah, we talked about, you know, the war theme, the Mars theme kind of last, last week. Um, I think it kind of turns a little bit into just chivalry and courage generally. You see, there's definitely a virtue of having the martial spirit, right, with, with Peter. Even him taking charge and risking his own life 
also being courageous in in other ways. Lucy has a trial where she has to be really courageous, courageous in a in a more social way. And it's it's all around this idea of belief and doubt. There there's a quote by C.S. Lewis that courage isn't itself a virtue. It, it's the way that every virtue looks at its testing point, right? So and we we've all heard this thing that courage isn't not being afraid. Yeah. Right. It's being afraid and doing the right thing anyway. And so I think that the vulnerability that the kids feel, especially with kind of the confusion of what they're even supposed to be doing ever since they got back to Narnia, creates a scenario in which they can all practice their courage. And it's, it's interesting if you follow the storyline, how it seems to, first they've got to get there, then they've got to come to realize where they are, and then who they are, and then eventually you have this progressive coming to see and be with Aslan that I'm sure we'll talk about more. But, you, you know, there's, uh, to me, it's, um, they have to start kind of at the bottom and rebuild their sense of self and, and, and being chivalrous and having courage and acting like a king and queen before they ever get to the battle. And then they are, you know, the kings and queens of Narnia and they can help Prince Caspian. And then we're continuing with the theme of belief and doubt. And that's where you can apply it to your own life. Like, how are they dealing with um, not knowing something and believing, you know, Lucy sees Aslan or doesn't see Aslan and the other kids have to deal with that again. It's another situation where Lucy's trying to convince them of something that they don't really believe. Yeah. And how each of them shows their approach and what we can learn from that. Uh, one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading, there's a quote by St. Augustine. And he says, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. And I think that's just such a good reminder of the way that faith works. You know, not to be sign-seeking or waiting for God to prove to you. He's got nothing to prove to you. You have more to prove to him about whether or not you're going to follow. I thought that that quote was uh, uh, very applicable. With that phrase, understanding is the reward of faith. If you flip it, if you don't have faith, then you won't understand. And just curious, how would that work? If, yeah, I, th I think, you know. Uh, what understanding do you lack or miss? If you so I, I think we've talked about William James a little before, but in his book, The Will to Believe, and that's a philosophical book that kind of is playing on some themes of other, um, other philosophers. Nietzsche had a, the, the book, The Will to Power. And when you have a philosopher that says the will to and then fill in the blank, that's basically them saying this is the, motiv the primary motivation for humans, right? Hmm. Viktor Frankl says the will to meaning, that's his statement. Um, and I don't think they're necessarily mutually exclusive. But with William James' will to believe, he gives a, a little analogy. And he says that if you imagine that you are a rock climber stuck on a ledge and you can't get out of that ledge by climbing, and there's a little chasm and you can jump to safety over this chasm from the little ledge that you're on, he says, you might die. Whether you believe or not, you might not be able to make it. But if you don't believe you can make it, you surely will die. Hmm. If you believe you can make it, you might actually make it, right? And obviously, maybe it's not life and death all the time, but he's using that analogy, right? The process of, of gaining knowledge, because William James was a pragmatist, knowing things was really important. He's not saying that belief in some, in some fictitious thing is more important than knowing something. But the process that getting to knowledge might require you believing first. Yeah. And understanding that belief is a choice, right? We, have, we believe a lot of things that we don't really have that much proof of, but we don't know, we don't have a lot of proof of most of the things that we believe. So recognizing it's your choice to believe, taking that risk, risk requires some vulnerability. And I think that's the courage that we're talking about is the risk to believe. Are you willing to believe? And, if, and that's what, you know, faith is. And so that's how these, the Pevensey kids are tried they now know this truth or they have, they're now decided they're all resolved to do the right thing. How are they going to show that through the unknown? Well, I, I think with that, let's, let's jump into the book a little bit. So early on the kids that they, they've made it to Narnia, you know, they, they've fought Trumpkin and, and they're realizing Trumpkin's uh, told them about the horn and they're realizing, oh, it's Susan's horn that's brought us here. And Edmund makes this comment about, oh, it's like we're on call and, you know, someone can just pick up the telephone and we show up in Narnia. And, and he, he says that and essentially just says, like, that's distasteful. It's, that's unpleasant that it has to be like that. And Lucy says, 
well, it's what we want, isn't it? Like, because it's what Aslan wants for us. And she says it with a little bit of the self-doubt, but that, that, that line really stood out to me just because Lucy isn't questioning if it's what they want. Her question is, well, if it's what Aslan wants, shouldn't we want it? Shouldn't that mean it's good for us, even if it's unpleasant for us? And I, I love that Lucy always has those really insightful one-liners because she seems to be the most in tune all the time to, to what Aslan probably wants for them. And in this instance, she points it out to Edmund. So does that make you think of anything? Or well, I was just thinking, like, before they get pulled back into Narnia, um, I can imagine that's all they want. In their mind, all they want, they're thinking about it for a whole year. Oh, if only we could get back to Narnia. Oh, remember when we were kings and queens? What lovely times, you know. It even got them out of school. That's right. <laughs> well, they actually came back right where they, when they left off, so they didn't get to skip anything. But yeah, they didn't have to go to school while they were there. But just realizing that, like, we can posture about what we think we want. There's Later, when we get to Paralandra, there's this line from Lewis himself, because he kind of inserts himself into that story, where when we're exposed to goodness, we always want to say we like goodness. Yeah. But goodness usually comes with a responsibility. It's difficult. It's going to take you out of your comfort zone. And so to say you like goodness is, sounds great. Yeah. But then when you're thrust into it or called into goodness by a horn or something against your will. Less comfortable, less yeah, pleasant. Then you have to actually you know, live up to what you were posturing about. Yeah. And so I think that's, I think it's just a really interesting way because I want to say, yeah, I want to go to Narnia, but I don't know if I want to fight a duel with it, with like this usurper king guy. And that's, that's the reality of Peter going back to Narnia. Right. Yeah. I like that. Uh, another, another one that I liked was, um, Trumpkin was that they're talking about needing to leave. And he essentially says, Hey, I, I've already wasted an hour being a fool. So let's, let's hurry and leave. And it's when, after he realizes these are the kings and queens of Narnia, the horn must have called him back. And we'll see later on, he doesn't just outright go and start believing in Aslan at this point, but he does believe that they're the kings and queens of Narnia, which is interesting that he doesn't quite make the jump all the way there yet. Um, but that is his personality, I think, how he's represented one step at a time. But, but right in that same moment, uh, I think it's uh, Edmund renames him the DLF. The DLF. Right. The, what is it? What's dear little friend. Dear little friend. And at first when he says dear little friend, I think he gets upset and then they call him the DLF and then all of a sudden it's like, and then they call him that for the rest of the Well, time. he actually calls them, or he calls Lucy a dear little friend, or he calls, I think he, he calls Edmund the dear little friend first. So, and, and he take Edmund takes offense to that. So you can see that's like, it's not like you just have these kids that do the right thing all the time. They're kind of petty. Yeah. You know, there's a, I don't know, Trumpkin doesn't like being called the dear little friend and they call him the DLF. And then it says like, they forget even what it me- meant after a while. So yeah. it just becomes this name. I don't think that there's any moral trying to say like, yeah, you should call little people a diminutive and offensive names. <laughs> I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that's the point. I think it's like, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I think it's just like a realistic type of interaction between kids and yeah. Know. And, and obviously there's, there's a lot of insecurity from especially Edmund and Peter when they come back, because the last time they were in Narnia, they were Kings. Yeah. And then coming back and for somebody to not, not even believe who they are and then also, and also patronize them a little bit about their abilities. And so there's a little bit of showing off with Edmund challenging Trumpkin to a duel and everything. And, and I think Trumpkin just handles it so gracefully as far as being somebody who doubts, I mean, he's. He's kind of like the, the virtue, he's, like, he's a ringer in the, in the area of virtue, where it's like, he won't say that he's virtuous, he won't say that he's even, even believes. But then whenever he's tested, he comes through very honorably. Yeah. And, he, and the second he realizes that they're kings, he treats them like, you know, That's they're right. kings. He calls them that, you know, obeys them even when he's like, I disagree, but you're the king, so here That's we go. That's right, yeah. You know? He shows a lot of uh, that chivalric virtue yeah understanding the line of command putting himself you know when he said to caspian even on his way here where he's like i know the difference between giving advice and taking orders i've given my advice now it's time to take orders so you can tell that he he's really he has a lot of integrity yeah. and so i th- i think the that lewis is showing like if you're gonna be somebody who is just total totally believe anything or somebody who is in, maybe a little more doubtful but has integrity it's better to have integrity and be doubtful. 
Yeah. So there's kind of like this priority because like we said last week, you know, Nickerbrick had no problem believing in Aslan. He had also had no problem believing in the witch and he'd believe in whomever. Whatever got him what he needed. That's right. So I, I don't want to jump over any part that you feel like you want to cover here, but a big piece of this story in my mind is kind of kicks off with Lucy first thinking she sees Aslan and with like the night vision and then that kind of progressing as the other kids come to see them. Is there anything before that that you wanted to jump into? Well, I just feel like she's in the same pro- predicament as she was in the book before. Oh, yeah. Right. She, she has this experience. She's the youngest. She's in this vulnerable position. I mean, maybe not everybody has the experience being the youngest, but it's siblings provide this test of peer pressure and of social inclusion in a way that I think can be even more intense than what you experience at school. Hmm. And I think Lucy, being the one who, who sees Aslan, it even says that she had this terrible task of waking people up and telling them what she knew they didn't want to hear. Mm-hmm. And that's tough. So she's in a very hard place, which then brings another problem. What, do you, what does she do about it? Does it being hard give her an excuse to not do it? And that's her, that's her that's, trial, right? Yeah, and that's kind, kind of what she says to Aslan when she finally meets him is, is well, I did see you, but they wouldn't listen. He's like, so? <laughs> right. Was I just supposed to come by myself? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I... <laughs> it seems unfair that Lucy has such a big trial. And I think it's like, well, it's not like the other kids got out of that trial. Yeah. You know, they have their own versions. And when, when doing the right thing is hard for us, just like you brought up before, you can think about yourself and how, and pity yourself. Or you can do the hard thing that goodness requires of you. Yeah. And so how hard is that task? It doesn't really matter. You know, we'll all be tested that way. And so you kind of see that each, each child or each Pevensey kid goes through. Did you, did you see anything when Lucy wakes up at night and it says, you know, as she's kind of sleepwalking or it says she was more awake than wider awake than anyone usually is, which I, that's a very C.S. Lewis type line to me. Um, and then it says that, you know, she, I can't remember what she says, but it's essentially says like, you know, like that line where you just left one word out and you would have gotten it right or whatever, like. What did you see there? Because I, I feel like C.S. Lewis is trying to say something that like maybe we all feel when we feel like we almost had a spiritual experience or like we almost got there, but it wasn't. Right. We, like we want to take the first step of faith and then we want everything to just be answered for us. And that's never been my experience. In fact, that's so much part of my personal faith, like frustration is that I dream, I think I, like if we're going to do some dream analysis, I have dreams all the time where it's like, I'm. I can almost fly. Have you ever had this one? Yeah. Where you can almost fly, but <laughs> I don't know if you ever played a uh, Super Mario World where he flies with the cape. He's not really flying. And after a while, he kind of settles back down to the, the ground. That's kind of how I fly in dreams is like, I can just jump really high <laughs> or really far. I can't ever really, you know, get to flying. And I feel like that might be an analysis of how I feel. It's like, oh, I want, I want to make the right choice and then for everything to fall into line. That idea of everything falling into line, J.R.R. Tolkien calls that a, a you catastrophe, that you being good and the catastrophe following, you know, it's, it's like a good catastrophe. And we see that that actually happens in the book, but much later. It doesn't happen right as soon as we make the decision. You can remember from Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, Peter's told he's going to be a king and then immediately he has to be tried, not rewarded. The trial comes first. He has to go fight Malgrim, the wolf. And right now it's, you know, Lucy's showing a lot of like real faith. She's, she's doing all the right things and it's like, okay, she's going to get the reward. So, so maybe what you think is, is this part kind of shows you that even though, you know, she is the fastest to believe and to like realize who they are and what they're doing here goes out in the woods, just kind of on, it felt right. And, and it seems like it's this almost spiritual experience that like C.S. Lewis is maybe saying get comfortable with that because a lot of life's going to feel like that. Like, you, like you're almost there and that there's something there, but you're not going to just, ha- the line's not just showing up. It's like the way that their, te- their faith needs to be tried in this story. It's different. We, we kind of all have our pet virtues and also our pet vices, right? We could say that sin is the worst sin because I don't have any problem with it. 
Yeah. And it makes me feel better about myself. And that virtue maybe isn't that important because I struggle with that one. And I'm really good at this virtue. So that's the most important one. And I think right now they're being tried in the most difficult way that the trial can present itself to them. Right? So Lu- why, why the most difficult way? Well, like Lucy doesn't have any problem seeing Aslan. Her faith isn't weak that way. Her problem is putting up with the insecurity of interacting with her siblings. That's the trial she has to face. Susan, Hers on the other hand. courage. Right. Is just being brave in, with other people. Right. Susan, on the other hand, she needs, to, she's like. Whiner. <laughs> oh, she's, she's difficult in this book. <laughs> she is. <laughs> and the, I think the, a lot of the reason that she's difficult is because I see myself in her a little bit. There's the line where it's like, what if I were to act like Lucy and just say that if you didn't follow me, I would stay here. Or, you know, if, if I didn't come along with you, you know, once Lucy has, is trying to convince them to all go with her. And if, and if not, she's going to have to go alone because she's learned her lesson, right? I'm glad I exercised a little self-control in my criticism of Susan before you said that. <laughs> Since you're seeing yourself. <laughs> well, I, no, I do, I, do, I do see myself. I think the virtue that each kid is called to is the one that they have all the excuse to not portray, right? Susan has so much, you know, it's just little Lucy. Why are we doing this? Oh, she's getting frustrated. Later we know that she actually did believe that Lucy saw Aslan. Yeah. That's the scary thing. She admits to Lucy and she says she apologizes. Aslan even says, you listen to fear. And it's interesting. Why wouldn't she want to believe something? It's almost like the belief itself is something that she just doesn't want to let happen to her. Hmm. I'm trying to think if there's something in the book that would, does she figure out why she didn't want to believe? Isn't there a line somewhere when she's talking to Aslan at the very end? Something about just getting comfortable at home in my life again. Her focus, her motivation is to grow up. She wants to be an adult. And I think being back and finally being in the swing of things, especially in teenage years and these young, they're young teenagers, right? These kids, you start to come to your own and your identity is a big deal. So she's starting to feel like she finally fits in or is, is growing into herself. Being pulled back into Narnia feels like regression to her. Hmm. Interesting. So it'd just, be, it'd just be easier if she didn't have to deal with this, no matter how magical it is, right? Sometimes goodness, when goodness presents itself to you, it'd just be easier to not have to deal with it. Yeah. Well, one part I didn't want to jump over is, and this has happened, same thing with Aslan and Susan, but earlier with Lucy, when she finally sees the lion and gets to go up and he does rebuke the kids. He definitely doesn't hold any punches as far as when he first interacts with them. But at the same time, his forgiveness is almost, is, feels like a foregone conclusion also. Right. It's come, let me breathe on you. Let me, let me make you queen. Let me, let, let me help you feel who you are again. All right, Queen Susan let's go. And it's, just, it's really cool. It's, it's very short. It's fast. I, I think C.S. Lewis does this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and in this book that when with Edmund, when he needs to repent or, or with Lucy, when he's talking to them after they've made mistakes, C.S. Lewis always makes a point that excuses just seem uh, pointless. There's, there's no reason to have excuses when, you, when you've made mistakes. And it feels like even the kids a lot of times intuit that and don't try and make an excuse. They just come and it's time to move forward. They do know Aslan. They have experienced him. They trust him. You know, it's just, can they get past themselves to get back into that zone of into being able, zone. Yeah. right? So it's like, like Susan's almost reluctant to get into the place where she can have the assistance of Aslan because Aslan says, you know, breathes on her and says, are you brave again? Um, mm-hmm. And I've heard that the, an analysis that, you know, the, breath of Aslan is, is akin to the Holy Spirit, right? And so, mm. but, but it's interesting. It doesn't just, he's not breathing on them as soon as they come into Narnia. They kind of have to get over this proof, this trial to show. And then, I mean, I, I imagine it's like with me, if I had this, a trial that would require more of me than I think I'm capable of, but it, if it's God's will, right, do I have the faith that he'll assist me with his Holy Spirit to be able to follow through with that trial? And I think that's what's happening is, um, you know, they all, they, 
they're asked to do things that might be beyond their ability. I don't know how much we can blame Susan. I'm not sure. I don't think Susan's not the villain here. Susan's just a different angle of what a trial looks like. And Lucy does have a better go at it, but she, you know, it wasn't all just, you know, good job, Lucy. When they see Aslan, he tells Peter, uh, he just calls Peter, dear Peter, you know? Yeah. But he says to Edmund, well done. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's our job. Obviously, Susan's obnoxious in this. And, and because we know, we're reading the story. We're like, this is an Aslan story. Of course he's there. But I know that if I were in that situation, I would act a lot more like her. Yeah. You know, I know myself. And so it's like, I don't think the point is to say, bad Susan, don't be like Susan. I think it's recognize the Susan. See yourself in Susan. That's right. That's right. <laughs> See your Susan. <laughs> give, give her the benefit of the doubt. Of the doubt. Yeah. And, uh, and Aslan saves the day. Yeah. And so, so many good faith moments, especially like when Lucy, when they're finally following him and Lucy sees Aslan appear to go off a cliff and she sees it. And I think it says like it required her last bit of courage to like step up there and follow him. And then the kids watch Lucy go after her and they're like, you're going crazy. And then they get up there and they actually see the path down and it's really the best path down. And C.S. Lewis just keeps pushing on this narrative of like, you're not going to know the end. You're not going to see it. it. A lot of times it might seem like you're jumping off a cliff, but if you're following the right person, if you're following the lion, then it's, it'll, it'll work out. Right. And it's also not just finding the answer and solving the problem. Aslan's here. So now we don't have to work on a virtue anymore. Yeah, it's, it's almost, still hard. It's like a video game. It's like you level up now, the, now it's harder yeah. and you've proven yourself. And now, but the whole time as you keep reaching for harder and harder skills, you're developing those skills and you become you could become better at it. It's, Lucy's faith is stronger here than it was the night before. So now when she sees Aslan go off the cliff, it's like, oh, this is the way that you need to exercise that faith muscle a little more right here. And you see that with Edmund and there's a little bit of ex excitement when he starts seeing Aslan's shadow yeah. and then kind of apologizes. And then, but he, was, he followed anyway, even before he saw Aslan. And so you see that each time you accept something, accept a challenge of goodness and you do the right thing. It's not like, okay, good, you're done. No, it's right. then a next greater and Great, harder you have thing. a new tool. Now come use it over here. That's right, yeah. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, uh, I think we'll take a break and, uh, and we'll come right back to you. All right, welcome back. We are going to start out and now at Aslan's How. Let's see, Peter and Edmund show up. They're in the hallway. I think Trumpkin's with them, is that right? That's right. And they hear kind of what's going on in the room. And I don't know if you want to take it a yeah. little bit. So Cornelius, Caspian, Truffle Hunter, they're the loyal to Aslan group in there. Yep. But they're with Nickabrick, and Nickabrick's brought to this Some council. sketchy folks. Yeah. A, a hag and a werewolf. If you remember from the last book, they're not the good guys, right? Mm, bad guys. <laughs> and, and, so, and at first, it doesn't introduce them right away. You hear them talking and you can tell Nickabrick's essentially saying like, look, we blew the horn. Nothing's happened. We're losing in these skirmishes and whatever's going on. We need some other resource, some, some other way out of the situation we're in. Right. Nickabrick says like, they're not coming. And Truffle Hunter says that, you know, it's kind of a funny wink to the reader. They may even be at the door right now, yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Nickabrick's argument is, hey, there's a power that we can rely on that's right here. And it's the witch. And, you know, at first you hear, I, ca I can't remember what was Caspian's or their reaction to. They all stood up and they yeah. said together, the witch, the you know? Witch. Yeah. It's <laughs> <a> funny moment. <laughs> And, and, and who is it that points out that she was a tyrant? Like, why would we want the witch to come back? And what, what was Nickabrick's response for why he was okay? Yeah, I can't remember who says that, but he says she was always all right to the dwarves, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it's that same thing as where, what we were talking about before, where goodness always seems so great or whatever until you actually have to be good. Yeah. And then it comes with a lot of responsibility. In the same way, like evil can seem kind of benign when you're not in it because she, he says something about like a hundred years winter. Now that's power. Yeah. Yeah. It's also cold and miserable. Right. Yeah. But he's, he's just wanting power to, to have, um, to be able to overcome 
to beat the Telmarines. So he's so single-minded that he can't see what I think is the most important part of our reasoning through virtue is the nuance, right? It's not just, there aren't just things that are good and things that are bad. The context matters. Yeah. It's, it's not just, you know, defeating the Telmarines. You got to do it the same. The reason the Telmarines are bad is because they do bad things, not because they're Telmarines. And so if you behave like them to defeat them, you're no better. Yeah. And also how often do we maybe use a tyrant as, as an excuse to replace it with something worse? Right. Yeah. The tool, uh, the tool of a tyrant or the way that, a there's, there's some phrase about like the way that a tyrant justifies power is always necessity. Yeah. Right. We need this. There's no other way. So I need, you know, martial law or some emergency powers because we need, we need that. And then, and then that becomes just the, a changeover to a new tyranny, right? Because you're already behaving in tyrannical type or using tyrannical motivation for overthrowing tyrants. Yeah. Did anyone else think that uh, Prince Caspian was going to turn into a werewolf when he got bit? Because I worried <laughs> I about it. I was, <laughs> I was concerned. I was kind of thinking that like, <laughs> wait, is, is that just a thing that, I mean, Lewis is writing this in 1950 or 1949 or whatever. I'm not sure if that part of the mythology of werewolves is like an ancient thing or if that's a more recent invention. J.K. Rowling or Stephanie Meyer invented that sort of thing. I'm not sure. Okay. I was nervous about that. And then the uh, name of where they're staying, Aslan's How. Yeah. C.S. Lewis was a grammar master. <laughs> philologist. Well, Philolog he wasn't really a philologist. That's a, that, he was uh, fluent in Old and Middle English. A lot of his analogies where he's teaching another principle, he'll use grammar to teach a principle oh, yeah. in other books and things. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll get to that. But Aslan's how, maybe like what, who, how, <laughs> you know, little uh, maybe. weight in the name. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's a dual meaning in that word. The word is just an old archaic word for a hill, but maybe he did mean something by how in the way that we use that word now. It's like, how are they going to do this? Or how is Aslan? follow through, you know, or how did he do, you know, how did he die on the stone table, right? Because yeah. that's the Aslan's how is a mound that's built up over the stone table. After that, Peter comes up with the idea of they outnumber us. So let's try and see if they'll do, uh, go, go to a duel between him and Miraz. Miraz. Yeah, before we get there. Um, yeah. So, th so they barge in to where Nickerbrick and his cronies are trying to bring back the white witch. I'm not oh, sure yeah. if they would have been able to. I'm not sure if the white witch really is dead or if it's just bringing back the power of the witch. But they barge in. There's this scuffle, confusing scuffle in which all the bad guys die and all the good guys are fine except Caspian got bit. Nickerbrick dies and Nickerbrick's been a character that we've been with and it's kind of, the, he's this tragic character and we, obviously you can see he's instructive as like this opposite of Trumpkin, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he's this tragic villain. And Caspian says something like, I don't know who killed him. I think it was actually Caspian. I'm not sure if he's just like trying to say, we don't, <laughs> we don't know who, who did it, but it's probably Caspian. But he said he had gone sour inside from long suffering and hating. If we had won quickly, he might have become a good dwarf in the days of peace. And I think that's instructive. Sometimes we want to just say like villains are villains. I do think it's important to see villains are suffering. They're in a difficult place and not to say that villainy isn't villainy. It is when you do the, a wrong thing, it doesn't matter your excuse. You're doing the wrong thing. But I don't think that it helps us to say they just did bad things because they were bad. I think we, to have a little bit of empathy for people who you want to just vilify, I think is an important, I think it's a mark of maturity that Caspian shows. I love that because I think when I first read it, I just thought, oh, that's a nice platitude for someone who just died and maybe it was you. And so you said sure. something nice about him. But C.S. Lewis, Lewis probably wasn't a man for platitudes. I mean, if it was there, it was probably, I, I think you're right. Yeah. So now the mutiny by Nickerbrick quelled. Okay. Now that the, the kings and queens are back, now we can fight What's the Telmarines. What are we going to do? Yeah. And uh, Peter has this great line where if you watch the movie, you don't realize that Peter, he learns his lessons quicker than the, than the Disney production movie. 
he <laughs> they they keep maintaining this like back and forth ego feud between Caspian and Peter. But as soon as Peter gets there, he's like, I'm not here to replace you. I'm here to put you in the throne sort yeah. of thing. And it's yeah. like, okay, he's already learned his lesson. He learned his lesson on the way to Aslan's how with the rest of the Pevensies, you know, yeah. through that trial and going the wrong way and making the wrong choice and realizing that Lucy knew all along and it's humbling and he's humbled. Then from that, he decides we're going to duel Miraz so that we can solve this conflict without a lot of death. Yeah. And, that, and they say, it's probably not going to work. And he says, well, it'll buy us a day. And that's can, right. You know, learn more about their forces and figure out what's next. Yeah, it's a good decision. And then there's this funny interchange. Well, the, the letter that Peter writes to Miraz is just so high language pompous, yeah. but it's, they're playing to Miraz's ego. Yeah. And there's this funny exchange. When Miraz gets the challenge, Edmund goes and delivers the challenge to Miraz. And then there's these two counselors of Miraz, Glozel and Sopespian. And um, they're not good, good people. They're, they're, they don't like Miraz. They're just kind of on the same side. And they apparently put Miraz into power and he hasn't repaid the favor. Him up. And so what they want is to conquer the Narnians, but also kind of get rid of Miraz as well. And so they do this like reverse psychology, playing to his ego, but also saying, you should not accept this duel. Peter is, he's, he's in his younger. youth. <laughs> That's right. And somebody of your age would never be scoffed at for, for not accepting this challenge. Yeah. And it like makes Miraz mad because he's been told that he's too old to challenge this kid in a duel. And so they get what they want. And he does accept it. He says, he even says like, I wasn't going to accept it, but now because of how, the disrespect that they showed him that he was going to, he accepted it anyway. And the duel is another one of those situations where it's like not glamorous. Yeah. These battles, you know, there's, there's some, there's some like romanticism to the chivalry and wanting to go into battle, but the battles are not romantic. And I'm sure that just comes from Lewis's own experience in war. And, and I do think that's a good thing for kids to learn. Is like, no, fighting and killing people is not something that you should aspire to. It's not a good thing. Hmm. Did you think when they're fighting first, it seems like Peter's going to lose. And then what I'm trying to remember what happens. He uses Miraz's weight against him or something. One of the, one of the characters on the side, cause you're not in Peter's head when, when the battle's going on, it's all from the perspective of the spectators. spectators yeah. Like. Oh, look at that move using his own weight against him or something like that's smart. Yeah. And then he, they, they call the timeout cause now they're both injured. Mm -hmm. And then when he goes back in at one point, Peter has the advantage and can take him out. And Edmund's kind of like, this is the one place I wish you weren't quite so <laughs> regal and princely or kingly. Or, right. right. Oh, but I guess he has to be yeah. chivalrous, right? Because yeah. he's the high king. And then, uh, he lets him up and then his counselor, oh, his counselors say, what, how is it that they said they cheated or something? They, they actually, I think it's Glazelle. I'm not sure which, which one actually, but um, they, they actually yeah, they, stab. They stab him as they're they, running by yeah. and say that there it, was treachery. You're right. And then they say it's treachery. And so the whole army thinks that Peter, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure what that, that like what constitutes treachery. But yeah, it's funny because whoever stabs him, I think it's Glozel, stabs him and then immediately gets his head cut off <laughs> by Peter, right? <laughs> and uh, it, that, there's an interesting line about uh, that Peter would have actually been killed by them if, he, if Glozel didn't stop to get back at Miraz and kill him. And it's almost like the same thing happens with Malgrim when Peter comes up to Malgrim and he can't help but howl. Yeah. And so it gives, it gives him the, the opportunity to stab the wolf. The same sort of thing is happening here. So I think that because he's bringing this up, there's something that he wants to say. It's almost like the passion of rage and, or evil or something almost defeats itself. Yeah. I'm not sure how I would apply that to my life, but maybe don't <laughs> get super mad because then my rage will actually make me worse at what I'm doing. When you're being attacked by evil, <laughs> wait for it to howl and run it through. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the lesson is... is Wait for evil to defeat itself. It's the monologuing. It's That's right. It's the monologuing. <laughs> it's just a true principle. Yeah. All right. So obviously the, they win the battle. The trees show up and really just after that, it just seems like the battle's over. They sweep the field and chase them all back to the river. 
But then there's this really interesting part with Baruna. And we talked about this a little bit before, but it it seems like the story changes a little bit. All of a sudden, Aslan's going through the village and uh, producing miracles and doing all this stuff. And it's just yeah, kind of... he even unique. turns water to wine. Well, actually, Bacchus turns water to wine. And that's, that's right. an interesting character. Oh, and that's another one is there's... That Bacchus shows up and who else? His, his like, sidekick, Salinas. Yeah. Who's, like, this fat guy on a donkey. And what what's the symbolism there? Like... Well, they, they are God mythological. Wine and... Yeah, they are mythological creatures. Bacchus is kind of the, the Roman counterpart or the equivalent of Dionysus, right? The God mm-hmm. of wine. Um, there's this association with Bacchus and, and stuff that's like very pleasure heavy, like orgy, that, that sort of thing. He's like, that's Bacchus is like the yeah. God of this sort of party, party right? <laughs> but like, yes, the war's over, time to party. <laughs> and I think what he's doing, what Lewis is doing here is to say that like, you have these, even in, myth- in mythology, you have these representations of the power of God. And sometimes we want to say, oh, that's bad. Partying's bad. But Lewis is reminding us again, pleasure's not bad. It's just the, the context. So there's this line that Susan says where they're like, this Bacchus kid, he kind of yeah. scares me. I wouldn't yeah. feel safe around him if, Unless Ad- Aslan, was if Aslan wasn't here. That's yeah. right. And, and I think that's what he's saying is like, Pleasure is okay, as long as it's not for its own sake, as long as it's not making or taking precedence to, to virtue. And, and this is a difficult concept, especially to talk about in, in a way that, I don't know, like the, the idea of sanctifying pleasure, I think is one that C.S. Lewis brings up. It's a, theme, it's a theme that comes up again and again. And I think there's kind of like, he, he's trying to help us see Bacchus even in a different way. Seeing Bacchus as a servant of Aslan actually makes that sort of otherwise kind of shady behavior appropriate. I mean, Jesus, his first miracle was turning water to wine. Yeah. And I think to see the festive party enjoyment as being part of the result of the reign of God, right? I think it's, some, I think it's instructive. I think it makes us less prudish. Yeah. Now, I, I love the idea that like all of these things, joy, um, festivity, um, if we can see them more as neutrals in our lives, and as long as they're circumscribed within what we understand Christ to be, that they can all be good if they have, I mean, it's kind of the kite analogy. If it's got something holding it down and grounded, then it can fly. Like it's, it's valuable if it's tied to the morality or the right. And I think when we have like a lot of the motivation for people to do evil things is they're trying to, they, they think that that's the path toward pleasure. And I think what's kind of being alluded to here is, no, Aslan is the path to pleasure. It might be not a direct path, but he is also the god of pleasures as well as virtues. And so to trust that if you choose God, you'll get everything. If you choose pleasure, you won't even get pleasure. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think that's just kind of a, he's, he's telling it in a way that I think a kid can start to understand, okay, being a follower of Aslan, you know, a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that I can't have fun. Just means that when I have fun, it will be in an appropriate setting and it will actually be fuller, right? Not only is the wine wine but it's the best wine yeah right so you know i'm not sure if i really understand that principle very well but i can tell that and i i I believe it i think there's like this poetic way that he's saying that that he's trying to help us understand that and i think it's working on me a little bit more i think i'm kind of prudish and maybe i need to just chill (laughs) just chill (laughs) i like that yeah and then you can see obviously lewis's own opinion about the way schools are run and <laughs> yeah you know what kind of students are the ones who deserve to be turned into pigs and, and yeah and no what... i like the contrast where with the first school he's letting the kids out from the oppressive teacher and the second school he's turning the kids into pigs and he's letting the teacher out from the oppressive kids yeah <laughs> so either way um and that's something i think c.s lewis always wants to point out is is there are good people in every group you see it's uh, and it's maybe hard to see from the outside, but if their hearts are good, then you know Aslan obviously recognized that immediately, and they're called to the party. Yeah, 
And he also hated school as a kid. So yeah, <laughs> he went to some pretty crazy schools though. So I think, yeah, it's just kind of fun, but it has that feeling in the same way that Father Christmas in Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe kind of feels out of place. This feels out of place, but you can see, try to look at it from the way that a kid is seeing this yeah. and a kid's, you know, a, a kid can read through that and it doesn't seem so out of place as it does to us, but then they get a little bit of instruction of how to not be an awful kid and also how to look for what goodness is in adults, adults as well. Yeah. Then from there, the Telmarines are defeated. Everything's being wrapped up. Aslan creates this gate back to our world. That's right. And he reveals that the Telmarines were actually from Earth as well. They were pirates that found their way on an island into Telmar, which is actually Telmar's part of the world that Narnia exists in. And uh, it's kind of interesting. It's like, oh, it puts all the story together. And yeah. it's, it's kind of satisfying to hear that. But then Peter and Susan are told that they're not coming back to Narnia. Like they're kind of too, too big, too old, and they need to uh, go back to Earth and start to follow Earth's Aslan instead of Aslan and Narnia. Yeah. And they feel at peace about it. Peter and Susan do. Uh, Lucy and Edmund are sad, and Peter, I think Peter or Susan says, You'll understand. You'll understand when you, it's your turn for it to be your last time. Yeah. So I'm, I think that I'm not sure how <laughs> that applies to me, but I, I think it's important. <laughs> We'll understand when we get there. <laughs> yeah. And they go back and then there's the funny line, the very last line of the book where Edmund's like, oh, I left my torch, you know, his flashlight. Yeah. In, uh, in Narnia. I just think that's kind of funny. So going through this, it's, it was nice to go through story by, bit by bit, but so much of the book is valuable to just be immersed in it. And the way that it's written, there's just like this almost poetic way of teaching these things. That's why I think from even the way we're talking about it, the book does not seem that interesting, but being in it really, I think is, that's why we're just encouraging you listeners to read it if you haven't read it. What we have to say about it doesn't really hold a candle to what the words actually say. So I do want to go back to that part with Lucy talking to Aslan and how that interaction happens. And that's in chapter 10. We have a little audible clip from that chapter, and this is Lynn Redgrave reading. This wasn't it a shame, said Lucy. I saw you all right. They wouldn't believe me. They're all so... From somewhere deep inside Aslan's body, there came the faintest suggestion of a growl. I'm sorry, said Lucy, who understood some of his moods. I didn't mean to start slanging the others, but it wasn't my fault anyway, was it? The lion looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, you don't mean it was... How could I? I couldn't have left the others and come up to you alone. How could I? Don't look at me like that. Oh, well, I suppose I could. Yes, and it wouldn't have been alone. I know, not if I was with you. But what would have been the good? Aslan said nothing. You mean, said Lucy rather faintly, that it would have turned out all right somehow? But how? Please, Aslan. Am I not to know? To know what would have happened, child, said Aslan. No, nobody has ever told that. There's so much in that. Um, yeah. But I love that Lucy is, in her mind, she's having this conversation with Aslan. And he's just staring at her. <laughs> he doesn't say a thing. <laughs> and she answers her own question as if he told her that. And I think this is just really, I mean, that's definitely me. I could pretend it's so easy to want to like put responsibility on other people, right? At first she starts to try to blame her, her sister and brothers and the little growl, I guess Aslan does growl a little bit there and she realizes she, she can't blame them. And then she says, well, I couldn't have done it any other way. And then just by him looking at her, she goes through the whole process of really understanding, which means it was in her the whole time. This is like with my kids. You know, it's important for them to listen to me and to obey me as their dad. But I want them to be self-regulators. I want them, I think they do know the right answer. And I don't want them to feel like I'm the curator of their morality. I want them to be their own moral source. And it is in them. And if, you know, Aslan trusts that Lucy will get there. And that's good for Lucy. He trusts her. That's great. But then don't get into that place where 
you can pretend you don't know the right way to behave and you're just following orders. You know, taking the responsibility of your goodness is really important. Yeah, it says that Lucy knew his some of his moods when yeah. he when she hears the growl or she's looking at him. And to me, we we have to do the instructing part first. Kid and you talk to me about this all the time, but you know, your kids need to be programmed, they need to be taught. And once we've learned once Lucy now that Lucy knows Aslan and knows who he is, now all he needs to do is look at her and she needs to look at him and she can then be instructed by what she knows of Aslan and and how he interacts with her. Does that make sense? So I I think what what I see here is it's it's cool that Lucy knows Aslan so well that just being in his presence can instruct her and take her from where she where she'd gone wrong all the way through to what was right. Yeah, Aslan doesn't just want to tell us the right thing to do. He wants us to be self-directed in doing the right thing. He trusts us. And that's so instructive to me as a parent. I'm not just it's not just my job to teach my kids morality. I need to teach them how to be moral themselves, like how to how to self-regulate, how to teach themselves, how to be the owners of their own choices. And so tell them the right thing and then kind of hand off the baton a little bit. Right. Yeah. And I, and obviously the, that last line where Aslan finally does talk and he says, you're never told what would have happened. That's a can of worms that we'll get into later when we, t- when we read Paralandra. But I think there's, there's so much in that, that idea. Thank you for being in our book club. We hope you'll keep reading with us. And for our next episode, we will cover The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, chapters 1 through 7. If you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub at mountainair.media. That's bookclub at mtnair.media. And while you're at it, please subscribe rate and review on the podcast app.